All right, Exodus 20 is where we uh, are. And since this is the last week in our series, if you're visiting, welcome. Uh, today's going to tie all of the like loose ends together. And so we want to begin just by reading the text. We've been studying the Ten Commandments for two and a half months, going command by command, or they're, they're really teachings. They're not rules, teaching by teaching. So we want to read them all, and then we're going to focus on number 10 today. So Exodus 20, I'll start in verse 1, read along, or just listen in. And God spoke all of these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, and you shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. In heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The next one, verse seven. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord your God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then he qualifies. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. That's a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you or your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your animals, a foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Those of you who've been here, first four about how we connect with God. We worship him as the creator. There's lots of options only him. We don't make idols. We keep his name right. We don't bring him low. We, we reverence who he is. We, we step into his name and we live his way. And then we do that by following, following God's rhythm of work and rest. That's the first four. Now, the second set are about us and each other. Verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you may live long on the land the Lord your God is giving you. So starts with getting that home relationship right. You shall not murder. Life is precious. You shall not commit adultery. Commitments and relationship matter. You shall not steal. God gives. You're not to take it from someone else. 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shouldn't lie about your brother and sister there. Verse 17 is what we're going to look at today. So I thought we'll put it on the screen so we can say it all together. You ready? Let's say it all together. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see, to see you in the text, to see your heart in the text, to see your ways in the text, to see your life in the text. And God, by the Spirit, show us how to live in your way and honor you and show the world what it's like to thrive in following Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. What, is, uh, what does it mean to covet? The word covet is simply desire. That's what it means. So let's just think of it this way. Don't desire your neighbor's house. Don't desire your neighbor's wife. That's a smart move. Don't desire their employees. That's their servants. Don't desire their ox or donkey, their cars, 
their business equipment, their status. Don't desire anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we've been looking at all 10. These aren't the only teachings that God gives, but it's interesting how God packages these 10. There's lots, there are lots of gods. There are lots of things you can worship. He says, I'm Yahweh. I made you. I rescued you. So you have options. Choose me. And look at how the commandments end. Desire. There's lots of things you could desire. There's lots of things you could want. There's lots of things you could pursue in life. There's lots of things you could throw your world into. And some of them are not helpful. Watch your desire. So, so we're going to see how God rounds out these teachings. And this is going to help us to remember and live all of them out. So I'm glad you made the final one. The rest you can forget about, all right? Except don't commit adultery because, yeah. Anyway, listen to the podcast. So where do we begin? Eighth, uh, I'm eight years old, nine years old. Grew up in New York, second of four kids. Uh, my dad had a good job, but they decided that mom was going to stay home to help raise us. So that means one salary. And living in a big city, it's really hard to do. But they made that commitment, so we never had all of the extras, right? So what that meant was at eight, nine, ten-year-old, where there are lots of sneaker options, we had to choose intriguing ones. So I was born in 1972, the year that the swoosh made its public debut in Eugene and changed the world. And But at the time, growing up, you had options. You had, you had Converse, you had Puma, you had Adidas. Or you had Nikes, and Nikes were like the emerging one when I was going end of elementary, beginning of middle school. And we couldn't afford those because four kids, growing kids, and hardcore running exercise kids. So I'd blow through two, three, four pairs of sneakers in a school year. But there was a store called Tom McCann. Some of you are old enough to remember. Um, think of Payless with a different name. They take the current style, and they make it a little different and less expensive so that you can wear sort of stylish shoes, but not at the high uh, price. They're basically knockoffs. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't get to wear the swoosh. We had these Nike Stadias. I actually have a photo of it. I wore <laughs> the whale. And so it was, from a distance, see, see, from a distance, you, you would think that they're Nikes because it's a swoosh, a whale, a surfboard. Away. Like, you know, it's, um, so growing up as a kid, the last thing you want going into middle school is to stand out for the wrong reason. And growing up, I have to say, I considered every other shoe option a positive shoe option, but that's what we had. That's what we could afford. So I didn't have the swoosh. I wore the whale. Now, so, so at a young age, thank you, at a young age, I, I understood what it meant to Covet my neighbor's shoes. Because what you wore said who you are. At least I thought. And so I want to have a conversation today about coveting, but not in the, hey, you just shouldn't do this, but rather, what is it about it that's not going to help me? When I look at what I have versus what you have, when I look at what I've attained versus what you've attained, when I compare myself with you, what does that do to me? And then what does that do to us as a community of Jesus-loving people. Now, I want you to hear this. There is nothing wrong with nice things. There's nothing wrong with good things. There's nothing wrong with a nice home and wanting a nice car or a nice vacation or a great relationship. 
nice things are neutral, but I have to say for me, it wasn't actually about the shoes. It was about not having what everyone else had and how that can twist your view of people and stuff and what you choose to live for if you're not careful. So what we've done every week, we look at what God teaches and then we ask five questions. Some of you know them by heart already. And then we drill out on the last question, how do I apply it? We're gonna do the same today. Let's just look at it again if you have your Bible. Exodus 20, 17. It says, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his donkey or ox or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, first question, what am I supposed to learn? That's like the big, big, whenever you're looking at the Bible, you don't understand something, ask the big question. What am I supposed to learn? What is it trying to say? I think we could, we could put it this way. I need to check my desires. It ends, the Ten Commandments end with a heart check. I need to see if my desires are right. Now notice, God does not say, thou shall or you shall not covet. You have to read the whole statement. As a matter of fact, if we were doing grammar and we were connecting the phrases, you would put, you shall not covet, and then right under covet, it ties very particular things. God is specific. He's not saying you shouldn't desire. Nothing is wrong with desire. God is saying there are certain things you should not desire, and they all have to do with your neighbor. So I need to check my desires. Now, the, the entire marketing industry knows this. You and I have desires. So marketing, I'll do marketing 101, and I'm, if you're in marketing, don't shoot me, but I'm going to generalize and make a stereotype that is absolutely true. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference what the product is. The story is the same. Portray someone who you want to be, whatever that is. Now, cool common marketing is like it's a normal person because you identify, or maybe they go glam, who cares? Portray a picture, a video, a sound of who you want to be, then place the product in their hands and watch them enjoy it. And the goal is the same. If you have this, you will go in their direction. You will be like them. You can do what they do. You will be like them. You're in their crowd. You need, you need this product. I'm being stereotypical, but basically the recipe always works because of the way God has wired us. People in marketing are just understanding God's design. You were designed to desire. That's how God made you. So desire or longing, craving, whatever word you want to use, is a God-given gift. But the question is, and God brings it up, how are you going to use your desires? What are you going to, what are you going to desire? Where are you going to place your desires? And how are you going to focus your desires? So that's how marketing works. Cravings aren't bad, but left unchecked, God says, I might crave the wrong thing. Have you ever, like, saved up for the thing that you thought, because you were told you had to have, and you had it for a while, and realize, A, it's not as good as they said, or B, you weren't transformed to this wonderful person. <laughs> you got the expensive sneakers, and you're still slow. <laughs> right? It, 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 it works, 
with the right music and lighting and cadence. But when you have it, it's kind of like frumpy. It's misplaced desire. And so what do we do? We say to ourselves, wow, I won't do that again until tomorrow. You do it again. And it's the next product. And so marketers know how to grab your desires. All right, now, second question we ask is, what did this mean for ancient Israel? So the laws are, are thousands and thousands of years old. There might be a difference between what it meant to them and what it means to us. So we have to ask, what did it mean for them? Don't covet deals with the heart more than actions. I want us just to notice what the text actually says. It doesn't talk about actions. It just talks about the desire. Don't covet your neighbors. And then it lists everything possible because God rounds out his teaching by going back to the beginning. In the beginning, first one, I'm God, serve me only. I want your heart. I actually deserve, God speaking to us, I deserve your heart. I deserve your attention. I deserve your desire because I created it. Then on the end, he wraps it up by saying, wow, you and I need to desire the right thing. The, the commandments, to, according to Jesus, are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, passion for God, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things to Jesus, you've done it all. So what we want to talk about is how do I live out all of God's teaching, all of God's ways? And God says to us, his final statement in the 10 is you're going to have to self-check your desires. There's no penalty attached. This is interesting. It doesn't say, if you covet your neighbor's wife, zap! It doesn't, doesn't even say it. It actually doesn't say how to police it. So the leaders of the church need to check your desires, and if your desires are wrong, no. Some of the laws are attached to real consequences. Here, there are no consequences. Why? It's going to be a continual internal heart check. I can't police this for you. Here's why. I don't know your desires. I only know what you tell me, and some of it's true, and a lot of it isn't. Because we all put up the person we want people to see. I do it. We all do it. And so God says, as a loving father, watch your heart. Now, why did God give it? Third question, why did God give it? Don't covet is a summary of all the commands. If you think about it, Love God. That means there's other options. So just like you don't love your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's car and your neighbor's stuff, don't go after other things. In the same way, coveting is saying, I want what you have. Uh, idols. God says, don't make idols. I'm so huge, you can't put me in a box by making me look like a statue. But we long for things we can taste, touch, feel. God says, don't bring me low. And it says, I covet, I want to make God seeable, knowable. In my worldview, I bring God low. And God says, don't do that. It's the same thing as don't desire wrongly. Uh, some of them are more dangerous. Don't desire another woman, a woman that has been given to another guy. Why? It could lead you to adultery, which was one of the specific teachings. Don't, don't love their stuff because you may steal it, another one of the teachings. Don't desire justice so much that you're willing to take another person's life. Don't be so angry and try to do what's right that you end up murdering. Or as Jesus said, murdering in the heart, wanting to destroy them, their reputation, their life. Uh, don't love being popular so much that you're willing to lie in order to look good. You see, 
desire, coveting, craving is at the heart of following all of the commands. Now, what does this reveal about God's heart? That's question number four. I think this statement wraps up everything we've learned in two months. So if you've been missing it, this is like the deal for you. This is like super cliff notes. You can read the long novel or you can read the short story. God wants us to live satisfied in him. Now, if you drop off the in him, you're going to get a distorted view of God. So, so hear me. God does not say, I want you to live satisfied, period. Because satisfaction can come in all sorts of things, right? God says, through all of the commands, I actually made you to live satisfied, satisfied in him. Now, now Nate did a, a brilliant job last week of showing us how that worked. God, if you missed last week, I'll summarize. God reveals himself. Who is God? He reveals himself in three persons. One God, but he reveals himself three totally different ways. Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. There's one God, but he reveals himself in relationship with himself. I know this is kind of strange, but how are we going to fully understand God? But here's how he's shown himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're all in loving unified relationships. So Jesus the Son says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. Apart from the Father, I can't do anything. Perfectly united. The Son, Jesus, is never against the will of the Father. In the garden, he's about to die. Jesus says, not my desire, Father, your desire. Perfectly united. Jesus says, I'm going to send you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's sent from the Father. The Father sends the spirit of the Son to us. Again, we experience all of God. And as we do that, he says, the Spirit will only tell you what I have said. The Holy Spirit has nothing to say other than what Jesus says. Now, I know it sounds like I'm mad. Circular argument. All I want you to get is that God is revealing himself to us so united you cannot pull God apart. But so distinct you can't erase the others. Perfectly united. Now, why is that important? Coveting your neighbor's stuff is distorting the unity, the togetherness that you and I were created to have. When I want yours and you want mine, I'm willing to do things I otherwise wouldn't do, right? I'm willing to say things I otherwise wouldn't say. God is interested in us living our life as a church, as a family, together in harmony, doing his work, united us with God and us with each other. And God pinpoints our problem. Our problem is we have multiple desires. Now, if you have if you have started following Jesus Christ, here's the good news. You have been given the very spirit of Jesus. Paul says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. So you are a mixed bag of desires. The spirit of God is living in you. You want to know God's desires? You don't have to go far. God has given you his desires. Your deepest desires as a follower of Jesus, if you really are one, is actually his desires. Your deepest desires is to live like God. But you're still dealing with the human nature, the, the you that lived apart from God is not evaporated. So I've got two sets of desires. I have God's desires and I've got my desires. Therefore, God says, don't covet. You could put it this way. God 
is satisfied in himself. God is never viewed in, in the scriptures as dissatisfied. He's dissatisfied in the sense of we don't follow him, but he's satisfied, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in the same way, you and I were created to live satisfied in our God. He made us for it. But so, much, so many of us are saying like, well, that's ideal, but that's not like my real world. We'll get to that in a minute. How do we get more in tune with God? And how do we get more in tune with how he made us to be? That's the goal of do not covet. There are rhythms of life, the natural American or Western or our generation's rhythm is bigger is better, more is better. I have to have what I don't have. I am driven by what I do not yet have. So satisfaction, if I'm single now, satisfaction will come if I find someone. If I'm in school now, satisfaction will come when they actually pay me to be awesome like I already am. You know, or whatever delusion you have. And, or, or if you're mid-career, satisfaction may come when you can attain the position someone else has. Or gain the respect that no one gives. So we go to all these things looking for deepest satisfaction. And let's not kid ourselves. They satisfy. But not at the deepest level. So God says to you and me, it is possible to be soul satisfied, deeply satisfied, richly satisfied, apart from your neighbor's stuff. You can leave here with the same amount or less and be contented. Does that sound contrary to everything we are bombarded with? We're bombarded with you need it. And God says, you have it. But you have it in rhythm with me, my way, my direction, my life-giving words give you satisfaction. Some of us just don't believe it yet. Now, how does this pan out according to Jesus? So our fifth question is, what does this mean in light of our New Testament situation? So whenever we're looking at an early command or teaching before Jesus, we have to look to and after Jesus to see, was God saying something to them that is now different in Jesus, amplified, uh, changed slightly? And in this regard, I think James nails it on the head, the heart of this command. So write it down or look on the screen. James 4, James 4 shows us the, our challenge. Our challenge, and let's just go one slide back. I, I skipped one over. Coveting, in light of our New Testament situation, coveting is about misplaced desires. The heart of coveting for us is anything that is misplacing what God wants my desire to go after. And we'll tease this out. If this sounds ethereal, it will gain teeth by the time you walk out of here. Coveting is just, desires are good. When I place them in God's direction, my desires can bring satisfaction. If I try gaining satisfaction outside by misplacing and redirecting my desires to something other than God and what he wants and what he claims, I'm going to leave dissatisfied. James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Stop. Just stop there. He's writing to the church. This is so encouraging. We don't get along. Whew, at least we got that one out there. You and I don't always get along. Tension exists within families within this church. 
within couples within this church and within the broader community. There are fights and quarrels. Churches have struggles with interpersonal relationships all the time. And James says why. Don't they come from your desires? That battle within you. You see, God wants us to have a heart check. Whenever I'm reaching a conflict with someone for some reason, I first need to ask, is my heart on point? Because if not, I'm going to fight and argue over the wrong thing. You desire, but you don't have. In other words, I want something, I don't have it now, so you kill. Now, he's being extreme. James is from New York, born in Brooklyn, <laughs> raised in the Bronx. He's like straight up. You don't have what you want, so you kill. Now, he's not necessarily saying that you physically murder someone, but you're willing to step on them to get it because we have desire. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so what do you do? You quarrel and you fight. When I want what you want, and it happens in the marketplace and in schools and in homes all the time, I find your weak point and I bring you down. Because when you go down, I go up. We say, Jose, that's just business. I'd say, not really. That may be a system of doing business, but that does not have to be our system of living our vocation in the kingdom of God. We do not have to submit ourselves to a view that is against God's desire. And so you and I are going to have to make the choice. Are we going to do life God's way? Or are we going to say, on Sunday, I'll do my Jesus life? But Monday through Friday, man, that's business. That's like real world. To which I would say, no wonder we live dissatisfied. What if God guided all of life, no matter whether other people go that way or not. Intriguing. You could end up with less because the market goes the way the market goes and live with more because you have found God and he is satisfying. I know this is revolutionary. You can shoot me later. Now, James says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So again, it's not just about the prayer. So I was asking God to do this in my world and nothing's happening. And so God doesn't answer prayer or God isn't good because I didn't get what I want. And James reminds us, well, qualifier, have you checked your motives? Why are you asking? Why are you desiring? Are you asking God to give you his desires? Or are you just asking for your own stuff and saying, God, you're rich. Give me some. Jesus had so much to say about that kind of mentality. None of it is good. And you ask that you can spend what you get on your own pleasures. So I love James. Totally point blank. Our coveting comes down to I want what you have because what you have will make me happy. And we forget that God's wisdom says our satisfaction is found in God. Now, why is this important? This is important because Exodus 20, 17 reminds us we're not going to have equal amounts of stuff. I want you to catch this. Following Jesus does not guarantee you more stuff. Well, some say, well, God wants us to live blessed. I would say absolutely right as long as you, as long as you carefully qualify what you mean by blessed. If what you mean by blessed is that he's going to give us equal amounts and everyone's going to have more and bigger, you're actually sharing 
our common worldview ideology, which is against the kingdom of God. God doesn't guarantee you more stuff. Following his way usually compels you to get rid of your stuff. So the way of Jesus is not the way of our culture. But here's the fun part. When I covet, I am discontented with my stadias. When you have Adidas or Nikes or Pumas or whatever, whatever is important to, to the world right now. But if I realize, wow, I have something to wear. And I'm grateful that God's provided. And I'm not worried about what you think about me because I know who I am in God. That's a game changer. That changes absolutely everything. We were made by God for God. And whenever I misdirect my desire, my passion, my longings to anything other than what God is and what God wants for me, when I pit myself against you, I'm setting myself up for discouragement and dissatisfaction. My friends, in the church, we have people worth multiple millions of dollars in net worth in this church. I know this for a fact. We have people in this church who are barely making it day to day, barely making it at the end of the week, scraping by at the end of the month, and that will always be. Because in the family of God, he does not distribute Everyone gets this amount. God in his grace gives different people different abilities, different skills, different amounts, and God directs that. And this is a good thing. We need to celebrate the diversity of what God's given. But you need to know this. Jesus is equally loving to everyone. So if you have more financial means, you don't get more of God's grace. You don't get more of his love. You don't get more of his attention. As a matter of fact, God warns you it's going to be tough for you to live in the kingdom of God. God warns those with extra wealth, watch your heart. Because this wealth, that's a gift from God. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It could actually destroy you. And God doesn't say to the person with little to nothing, you are less, you get less. Equally loved, equal grace, equal provision. Now, how do I know that? Look at Matthew. Jesus' definitive teaching on this, you need to grab it. Because this isn't just about coveting. You want to know what the Ten Commandments are all about. Matthew 6, turn there or we'll also throw it on the screen if you're in one of our dark spots and you can't read your Bible and you haven't figured out how to download an app yet. Uh, Jim Williams has an iPhone. He will help you, all right? Married 50 years, flashing his iPhone. He's incredible and he's a great golfer and he's a theologian and he's amazing. Anyway, I'm a fan. Matthew 6, 25, uh, says this, Jesus speaking, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. Stop. This is already convicting. <laughs> Jesus says, don't worry about you. Well, why not? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink, about your body. If you can afford a Nike or you wear Tom McCann's, right? My version. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothes? And he gives us the why. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. Underline this next phrase. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You see, we live in a world where someone said, well, the birds just take care of the birds. No, the birds do not take care of the birds. Jesus says the Father 
feeds the birds. Now, of course, he uses natural means. Of course, he uses seasons and migrations and cycles. But don't you miss the big picture. God made this world and he orchestrates the goodness in it. So even though he uses regular means, don't miss the heart and the hand of God. God feeds the birds. We've got some beautiful birds that are right in our backyard every spring they come back and there's new babies and they're right at the level of our bedroom window so we know when they're in town. You know, we just hear the birds. And they go about and they grab branches and food and all of that and they're kind of nestled in these trees so you can't even see them. But it's just a reminder, God is outside of our window caring for these birds. They don't have a master's degree but they And this is a reminder to us, are we going to actually listen to Jesus and say, I'm going to find my satisfaction, not in what I get, not in what I create, not in what I produce. I'm going to find my satisfaction in that I'm better than a bird. Because Jesus, he actually, if you think you're on par with birds, you're not. Yet your heavenly father feeds Are you not much more valuable than they? Now he's not making an anti-animal statement, calm down. He loves the birds. But he is making an honest statement. You actually have more value than the birds. And if he cares for them, is he not? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the farmers, the flowers of the field, they grow. They don't labor or spin. They're not producing. The, look at, just look at your garden if you have one. And just look at the variety of colors every year, every season. And there's no dye. They're not like painting them. The bud opens up and there's this vibrant color. And then the sun goes on it and it scorches it and it kind of fades it away and then they fall off. And God's saying, you think you know art? I'm the artist. Like, I made this. This is my, we're not living in our world. We're living in God's world. And in God's world, you have value. What I want you to get is that you're not a bird and you're not a flower. You're more valuable. But we forget it. So when I forget that I'm more valuable to God, what do I do? I I misplace my desires. I want what you have because yours is prettier. It's newer. It's bigger. It's better. And that's the world that we live in. And Jesus says that's not how the kingdom of God works. Verse 30, if that's how the, the God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith, so don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat? We're going to drink, we're going to wear. The pagans run after all these things. And, underline this, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows, man. God already knows what you need. Do we believe it? Functionally, coveting, is the internal thermometer check that I do not believe God. When I want what you want, it's my, when you're you're feeling sick, you put a thermometer in your ear, your mouth, and and you you gauge that the temperature's already there. You're just checking what's already there. Coveting is our way of checking, do I actually believe that God cares? Because when I don't believe that God cares and that he can't care for me, I'm going to strive for what you have. So desire, hear me, is good. But desire is like fire. 
Fire in your fireplace is a beautiful thing, unless it's 90 degrees out and you don't have AC, right? Fire in your fireplace is a beautiful thing. Take the same fire and put it on your couch. Put it in your bedroom if you don't have a fireplace there. Put it in your living room. Put it in your kitchen and it will burn the place down. So passion is good. Desire is good. Craving is good. But not always. Not all craving is healthy. And so Jesus says to us, your father cares about you. Verse 33 is what he tells us to do. If you want to know, well, okay, so great. Coveting is bad. I'm guilty. Well, what do I do? Jesus says, well, change your desires. What? Verse 33. Seek first his kingdom. Pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day. So what's the invitation? The invitation is every day I'm going to have to check my gut. Every day, I'm going to have to check my desires. Every day, I'm going to have to ask myself as a Jesus follower, today am I going to trust God for my daily bread today? Or am I going to trust my job? Am I going to trust my status? Because the more I forget about God, the more I'm going to latch on to you. And I'm going to want what you want. And my friend, let's not kid ourselves, money is amazing. Money is amazing. And I hope you get more of it but it doesn't satisfy. Just know this. If your pursuit is more stuff, when I say money, it could be in the form of whatever, that stuff will never satisfy at the deepest level in the way that God can. Here's why. When you look at the New Testament, and what does this mean in terms of our New Testament situation? The biggest metaphor for the church is not a building, it's a body. And just just look. Look at God's description of what we are. We're a body. That means we're various parts. That means every part of me, in order for me to move, every part of me matters. Every part of me is important. The parts you see, the parts you don't see, the parts you think that are important, the parts you don't think that are important, and you belong to the body. So Jesus says you can be fully satisfied when you're operating in the way God made you, doing the thing God called you to do. So every one of us here has value because you matter to God and he shaped you and he made you. Here's the problem. When I compare me versus you, I get a distorted view of what God's trying to do. If we're all the I, that's just awkward. Cyclops on steroids. It's just, ooh. A body that's just an I? No. What if I had 12 eyes and no ears? That's just a freak. But God places everyone in their spot. And here's what I need to remember. They're not all equal, but they're all valuable. So every one of us has something to contribute, but it's just not exactly the same. We're made by God for God, so I get my value in God. And Jesus says, here is the secret. Watch your focus. Don't focus on food and clothing and and, and, and drink and the things that everyone else is Everyone else is chasing those useless dreams. They all come and go. But God says to us, me and my kingdom, I made you for something. I created you for something. And when you tap into what God made you to be and do and think and feel and contribute, you may have less cash and soul satisfied. You may have less position, less recognition, 
but so deeply satisfied. And I'm here to suggest to you that God's way is different but better than our way. All right, so what's the enemy? Because we, we need to expose the, the enemy is our expectation. We live in a culture because we're wealthy. Let's compare. Two billion, two billion people live on less than $3 a day. The average American spends $100 a day. Now, don't feel bad. It's just that's the way it is. So we live in a culture where most, if you think, and that doesn't include housing or cars, most, on average, spend about, we have more that we can spend. Nothing wrong. That's neutral. So some only get three. We get, let's say on average, 100 a day. That's kind of cool, except it, it distorts our expectations. I expect that I should have more because I have had more. Ever feel that way? I grew up with this, therefore I should have. Okay, so your parents did that for you, and therefore you're supposed to be at a higher you're supposed to be at a higher level than them? How egotistical. But our culture says, if they had this, your goal is this. But then we, we, we reach expectations that are out of control. USA Today, on Friday, a study. 42% of college graduates expected to make $50,000 in their first job. A survey of college Graduate expectations. Why? I paid 50000 a year. <laughs> Therefore, in my first job, I expect 50000 a year. The problem is only 23% of employers can pay that much, even if they are going to. So employers are saying, well, only 23% only can actually pay that much, but a college graduate's expectations are higher than reality, and then we get discouraged. But... I did this. I followed the rules. I did the hard work. Why am I not getting what I deserve? What you deserve? All I'm saying is there's a counter-cultural expectation. Jesus says you're valuable. Therefore, the Father knows what you greed. Is that what it said? No, no, no. It actually said, the Father knows what you need. And I am here to suggest to you, you can be fully satisfied with more or fully satisfied with less. If you are in God. So what's going to keep us, because our culture is going to keep bombarding us with this. What's going to keep us from falling off the deep end? We're going to have to fix our gaze on the kingdom of God. Jesus said, seek First, the kingdom of God. How do I seek first the kingdom of God? You focus your world on Jesus. Now, it sounds like a Christian cop-out. It just happens to be the secret of the universe. If your gaze is on Jesus, you start, you read how Jesus responds. You read how Jesus lives. You read about, about Jesus' generosity. He gives everything away. Jesus dies with nothing. They took the clothes on his back and they raffled it off. He dies with nothing in the bank account and he's satisfied. Jesus heals and works on the day where everyone rests. Jesus gives to others. Jesus loves the little kids. Jesus is so countercultural. If we're going to not covet and keep God's ways, we're going to have to keep our gaze on Jesus. And that's the good news. You have the Spirit. Jesus said, the Spirit will remind you of everything I have said. That means you and I can choose the path of joy 
and fulfillment in Jesus, or we can listen to the voices that are around us. If you don't listen to Jesus' voice, you will be disappointed over time. So how do we, how do we live this out? What's going to be required is wisdom. We looked at 10 commandments. There are 613 commands, but laws will not change you. What we need are God's words written on our heart. And when God's words are written on our heart, that is wisdom. We're about to start a new series next Sunday. I'm so excited about it called Words to the Wise. Words to the Wise, we're going to spend the entire summer looking at what God doesn't necessarily talk about. Should I have a staycation or a vacation? It's not covered. Should I go to a four-year school or learn a trade and work my way up? Should I marry young if there's an opportunity or wait till I put a down payment on a house? Uh, what about retirement? Should I leave my job early and serve as a volunteer or work as long as I can to pass it on to my grandkids? These are things that there are no verses about. There aren't verses about everything in life. But here's the cool thing. God says something about everything in life and it's through wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to take the words of God and apply it to daily life. So we're going to take the whole summer. The Ten Commandments are our foundation. We, we learn how to ask good questions. And now we're going to grow. We're going to look at wisdom in all sorts of areas. Relationships and family and friendships and leisure and passion. We're going to look at all sorts of things and gain a heart of wisdom. God has words to the wise. And what you're going to find out from next week is there's always two divergent paths. The path of folly, the path of destruction, the path of the unrighteous, the path of those who ignore God, and then there's the path of the wise. And God speaks words to them. We want you to be wise. I want to be wise. And this isn't something I can poof on you. I'm praying one day for the ministry of poof, where we just speak words alive and like, you're wise. Poof. John's got the smoke machine. We could probably pull it off. You know, all of a sudden, poof. The right sound, lights, and I can't, I can't be wise. I can't do it. I'd love to. Wisdom is knowing God. And that's always relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there we are in the middle. Be wise. But before we look at wisdom, we need to repent. So what we're going to do is we're going to respond with singing. And it's our way of repentance isn't a bad, dirty word. Like, I can't believe you did that. Repentance is simply a change of mind. It's a change of direction. Like, wow, I thought I deserved $50,000 because I graduated from school. I repent. I don't. I, I, I wasn't right. So I go a different direction. In the same way, because we are latching onto things, we need to cultivate a heart of repentance that says, God, I, I'm sorry. I thought this would bring me what you alone can bring me. So worship is our opportunity to repent, to align ourselves with the heart of God and enjoy Him. God's got joy for you, but it comes when we go on His path. Why don't you stand to your feet if you would. And I'm so grateful uh, for what we've learned over the last two months, but now we got to live it out, right? It's not just about hearing the words. James says, if you hear the words and don't do anything about it, it's useless. It has no value to hear this and not be changed. So we're going to pray that by the Spirit, as we sing, as we go to the tables, as we eat the bread and the cup, as we focus our gaze on Jesus, that He begins to produce in us something that changes the focus of my desires. I want that for me, and man, I want that for you. 
and by the Spirit, it's going to happen. Lord, we thank you for doing this kind of work in our midst. We thank you for your love, your faithfulness, your forgiveness, your patience with us. And now, God, as we worship you, redirect our heart back to you and to your ways. God, show us and expose the lies that we're believing and giving our attention and passion to when you created us to crave for you and what you want for our world. Lord, we repent of lusting after everyone else's stuff. When you have all that we need, we come back to you, Lord Jesus, and worship spirit and truth in your name.